before we start, I would like to make a brief disclaimer. Our guest speaker today is the executive director of the European Liberal Forum. During the interview, I am occasionally referring to the Liberty Forum. And even if it's all about freedom and liberties, the correct name of the organization is European Liberal Forum ELF. Hello and a very warm welcome to this episode of ESIP's Global Economy Podcast. My name is Matthias Bauer, Director here at ESIP, and our guest today is Daniel Kadik, the Executive Director of the European Liberty Forum. And today we want to talk about the past and the future of EU-China relations. But before we dive into the topic, let's briefly introduce Daniel and the organization he's running here in Brussels. Daniel, you are the executive director of the European Liberty Forum, an organization advocating human rights, freedom, democracy, equality, and respect for the rule of law. Could you tell us in a bit more detail what your mission is and what role the European Liberty Forum takes in Europe's organized liberal movement? Very good morning, and Matthias, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Well, the European Liberal Forum is an interesting being, if you will. You mentioned what we try to do, and we can summarize it a little bit, that we try to find liberal answers to European questions. So our mission is very simple, and that makes it also sometimes very hard. We want to create a liberal future in a united Europe. And we as an organization have three branches, if you will. We are a network of now 47 member organizations all across Europe, which also includes the UK, Turkey, and the South Caucasus and Western Balkans. Of course, we are a think tank. That means we try to come up with policy solutions with books, uh, publication, policy papers, but also discuss European matters during conferences. And we are a classic foundation. That means we want to enable and empower citizens to stand in the political arena in different political organizations like think tanks, like civil society organizations to help us find those solutions and to have this liberal future in the United Europe. Mm -hmm. Thanks a lot for giving us this overview. So if I can briefly summarize, you are engaging with 47 member organizations working for a liberal future of United Europe. That's indeed a very tough uh, exercise, if you wish. But now let's talk a little bit about EU-China political relations. I think the topic EU-China, it's always been an important topic in Brussels, uh, far before uh, the leadership of uh, Xi Jinping. But to me, it seems that China and how to politically approach uh, its political system, how to regulate EU trade with China, how to regulate the exchange of technologies. All this has gained in importance in Brussels and I would say also in at least large member state capitals, even more so after the Chinese leadership openly expressed support to the current Russian government after Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And you and your colleagues at the Liberty Forum, but I guess also in the member states and the organizations you are associated with. You're working on a vast number of topics and research areas, uh, ranging from economic and trade policy making, but also uh, from, let's say, security to human rights issues. 
And you and your colleagues also worked a lot on EU-China relations, closely working with members of the European Parliament, particularly the Renew Group, uh, previously ALDE, a liberal and conservative group in the European Parliament. And in 2019, uh, just to give you an example, the European Commission already characterized the People's Republic of China diplomatically as a cooperation partner, a negotiation partner with conflicting interests, but also an economic competitor and a systemic rival. Now, what is it that European liberals are currently most concerned about with respect to development of China's political regime and China's system of economic interventionism? Indeed, you touch upon a lot of topics that are indeed interesting for us. And you mentioned that we as European Liberal Forum are indeed involved in economy, trade, security and human rights. And these are all lenses through which we have to have a look at China. And I would like to stress one more thing that you mentioned. It is not only about economic competition. It's, it's about systemic rivalry. And that's something that we, I'm afraid, will see a lot more of in the future. And if you want to know what liberals are really concerned about with regards to China, you have to look at the EP report on the EU-China strategy that was voted on in 2021. And Hilde Waldmanns from the Renew Europe Group, coincidentally also the president of the European Liberal Forum, found, I think, a very clear language. And this is indeed this multitude, this, this multifaceted issue. It is the economic dependency on the one hand, and on the other hand, the economic interventionism of China, not only in China itself with a lot of subsidies, even though Europeans should probably not complain about that, but it's also the inter economic interventionism in, in Europe, the massive expansion into, into Africa. And this within the uh, framework of the strategic autonomy, European Union has to have a clearer stance on that. So it's the economic side. It's the human rights side, of course, with the, well, let's, let's call a spade a spade, uh, concentration camps that China has built for minorities. It is the regional influence that China is exercising and the clear uh, security threats that it is dishing out to countries. I would like to stress the word countries like Taiwan, but it's also the massive political influence that China is exercising with, with its economic power. And if you look at how certain big American companies have been reacting to China and the lack of criticism towards China in areas where there should be a lot of criticism, I think that that speaks volumes. But what also speaks volumes is how, especially across the Atlantic, the US has reacted, especially in 2019, when blocking Huawei from taking over 5G infrastructure in the country. So it's this multifaceted problem that we have, but the liberals are taking a very strong stand on that. And that's why I very much encourage you and the listeners to look into the 2019 report of the European Parliament voted in favor by 570 votes, and which is, I think, a very clear signal in support of that. But digging just a little bit deeper, what we've seen in the last couple of years is this very interesting attempt of China to get a stronger foothold in Europe. Um, and this is also something that European liberals, also from the Alde Party, by the way, are very much aware of. 
that China has been investing massively, that they have been buying technology from Europe, exporting it to China and selling it back to us. So again, the the issue of strategic uh, autonomy is very important and how we stand toe-to-toe to an economic competitor and the systemic rival that is not sharing the values that we hold so dear in Europe, this is the big question that will come on or that is on our plate at the moment. Okay, so Europe's organized liberals, they are closely watching China, what happens internally with regard to economic interventionism, what happens externally with regard to pressure uh, put on countries in Africa, countries in Europe itself. And in the report that you released in 2021, you found a clear language. Now, this speaks for Europe's liberals, right? And I wonder if these views are actually shared by other influential political groups in the European Parliament, such as the Conservative and Social Democrats. I think on the surface, we see language that is pretty much similar to the challenges that you just raised, also the language that, that you used. Uh, but are there at the same time still kind of differences in the day-to-day politics? And how does this translate to actual EU policies that could find sufficient support in the European Parliament? As I said, the uh, the report of Hilda Woutmann's in the EP was voted with 570 votes in favor, 61 against, and 40 abstentions. I think that that sends a very, very clear message that there is a there is a unity between the European political families, especially when it comes to the center and its peripheries. We don't have to beat around the bush that the far left and far right are a little bit more susceptible when it comes to the messages that mm-hmm. are coming from from China. Mm-hmm. But the the center they seems to be a very strong alliance on that. And uh, December 2020, we had the conclusion of the EU that between EU and China of the Comprehensive Agreement on Investment, which would grant us a lot bigger level of access to the Chinese market. But the CIA, uh, CAI, that way around, has still not been ratified. So there, you can also see that there is a certain reluctance that you see in the European Union when it comes to when it comes to China. This is all after which what I would call this honeymoon phase of or investment in China, this gold rush, if you will. And I think there is a lot of sobering up that happened, both on the economic side, but also on, on the political side. And if you listen to members of European Parliament like Katharina Rinsema, who sits uh, on the Inter Committee for so the Committee for International Trade, mm-hmm. they're becoming rather hawkish when it comes to China, when it comes to Chinese-led businesses also investing in Europe, which, again, there is um, the, always the big question to be made whether a company is a private company or if um, the, the reach of the government like in China is so strong, if it's not really a government, if not run, but government heavily influenced companies. Mm. And um, indeed, I think these matters are becoming ever more and more relevant, especially also because you have more and more MEPs being on the blacklist in China. The ALDE president, the, the president of the European Liberals, Ilhan Kuchuk, is on the blacklist in China. And there have been numerous complaints that the Chinese government has launched against him and his positive attitude and friendship with Taiwan. So 
there is clear a clear sign, however, and that's always the caveat to be made. There are, of course, people who follow rather party discipline here and still have this overly rosy glasses when it comes to China. But, um, but in general, I think the trajectory is rather clear. And it's also something, by the way, that I think we can see with the stronger focus on its own strategy geostrategic position when it comes to Europe, which is being discussed in the European Parliament. Very well. So there are uh, many issues now that become increasingly politically unacceptable in the EU. And this is happening cross-party, putting aside perhaps parts of the, let's say, left-leaning political establishment. Now, the European Liberty Forum, so you and your colleagues, are not only engaging on uh, political levels. Uh, you already referred to a few companies, U.S. companies. Uh, I guess you are also talking to U.S. companies. You are talking and, and engaging with many European businesses. Uh, my perception in the past was that most businesses pretty much elsewhere in the world tend to be much less concerned about, let's say, the state of democracy in China, the state of the human rights situation in China. At the same time, many companies in the EU, in the U.S., they for a very long time call their governments for protection against what they call dumping, protection against the theft of trade secrets and intellectual property rights. Now, what do you think? Are these concerns justified? And, and when it comes to, let's say, security, democracy and human rights issues, did European businesses become more assertive in the recent past with regard to the situation in China? I would say 100%, absolutely. And this is a multifaceted issue. You mentioned already the problem with the perceived dumping, then again, always a caveat um, with the amount of subsidies that we have, for instance, in the United States or Europe. Are we really the ones who should complain about something like that? Um, that's an open question also maybe to, to the listeners of this podcast. But bring it, it back again to the center. Yes, there is more assertiveness, there is more willingness also to take the consequences, and there is a bigger understanding of the problem that is there. Um, if you, for instance, talk to the German customs agency, the German Zoll, there is a big problem with a lot of theft of intellectual property that is even now being re-imported to Europe. What does that mean? There are, are designs that are stolen, patents that are being ignored, and then reintroduced on trade fairs in Germany, where then the German customs and the associated agencies um, go through those trade fairs and basically yeah, start bring, getting those people, the, these products out of there and starting issuing fines, which often um, are not paid. But there, there is a growing understanding that there is a problem. Also, that there's a growing under, uh, a problem with the outflow of patents and an outflow of key resources that we have mm -hmm. seen in the last year. So I would make two avenues here. One is the very hard economic self-interest side. Mm 
And this hard economic self-interest side is that you want to keep the patents that you have, that you want to have the, uh, keep the intellectual property that you have, that you have a partner that is not necessarily following what you have agreed on. And then there is the matter of critical infrastructure that is potentially dangerous and the issue of supply chain security when dealing with a country that is not necessarily following the same standards and um, you cannot rely on the on the principles that you have set out so this is the economic side and then on the other side we have the let's say the the, the soft issues or perceived soft issues which are human right but is also something that is becoming more and more relevant because if detrimental bad human rights situation also points to a lack of the rule of law in a respective country. If you have a lack of a rule of law and the enforcement of, of certain rules, you have also a problem doing business in the respective country. You have the potential PR problem that is being created. So again, this is more a self-interest in being more assertive and being more aware on that matter. And last but not least, we have the growing uh, push in the European legislation when it comes to the due diligence of companies in, in the area of compliance with human rights. So, and that companies have to make sure that their products have not been manufactured with child or slave labor. And it's not only that the companies themselves have to look into that, but also they have to look into their own supply chain. So again, this is then becoming an interest of the company to look into that. And this mix of hard and soft criteria is indeed something where I think that European businesses have become more assertive, but need to become even more assertive in order to do so. That's uh, what I would uh, underline as well. I was closely following the due diligence uh, legislation lawmaking process and there was a lot of pressure from businesses, small and large, aiming to water down the, the criteria and the enforcement mechanism in the EU. Now, economic self-interest, it certainly explains a lot in politics and this is certainly true for EU-China politics. About a year ago, the EU and the US, they together launched what they call the Transatlantic uh, Trade and Technology Council, and they underlined the geopolitical importance of protecting fundamental human rights, core democratic values, and at the same time, they aim to preserve what they call trade, investment, and innovation leadership in the world's largest market-oriented economies. And it's obvious that a key geopolitical ambition of this initiative is to contain China's rising political and uh, economic influence globally. Now, there seems, however, to be kind of a, a divide in interests, and this may cause to uh, outcomes that may not be optimal at the end of the day. As concerns the US government, there is much reason to assume that the uh, TTC is primarily considered a platform for promoting U.S. campaigns against China, uh, particularly those that were launched by the Trump administration and uh, that are still uh, encountered with a certain political appetite by the Biden administration. And by contrast, uh, Brussels is, based on what we know from the path of economic policymaking of, let's say, the past five years, it's much more likely to see the TTC as a mechanism for popularizing a more interventionist digital agenda 
or a more interventionist industrial policy. And then you also mentioned this, there seems to be some divide between political preferences in the European Parliament and the preferences in certain member state capitals because of some large member states' strong investment footprint in China, Brussels will likely be much more cautious when it comes to equaling U.S. demands and how to deal with Chinese state interventionism and issues with regard to the human rights and, and democracy situation. Now, Daniel, how do liberals and conservatives think about the TTC? Is it considered the right platform to address challenges related to China? And can we actually expect some, what I would call, real political or fundamental game changers for EU-China relations in the future? Well, is it the right platform? I don't know, but it's a start. It's a start, no. I think, in questioning certain dependencies that have been built up. And it's, I mean, this questioning of dependency, unfortunately, it, it needed the, the Russian aggression and the Russian war against Ukraine to, to properly kickstart this discussion in Europe. But mm. I think it's a, it's a discussion worthwhile having right now, how much we can really focus on one area uh, of supply that we have. It's not only about the prolonged workbench, but it's also about um, high technology and it's also about core resources core base resource like rare earth and others where we have an over dependency so when it comes then to ttc it's a start as i said and i mean if we would li live in an ideal world we would have um, concluded the ttip process in an orderly fashion and um, we would be five steps ahead of where we are right now but what are we talking about we are talking about something that you mentioned. We have the the this block of the pro-market-oriented economies. And as we said in the very beginning, we have the systemic conflict and we have an economic rivalry. That's why it only makes sense that the US and the EU and other like-minded areas, so the EU should not only focus on the US in that matter, but again, it's a starting mm -hmm. point. Yep. So. We need to see together how we shape our future and that we don't become bystanders in the, in the future, but we have had an active role in shaping it. Otherwise, in 15 years' time, all important standards will, have, will be set, not in Europe, not in the US, but in China. And this is something that raises tremendous questions when it comes to matters of security, but also in matters of critical infrastructure of our countries. Once more again, the big discussion that was led by FCC in the United States was about the mm. security of critical networks when it came to 5G. And this is also something that, that we have to look at. So we don't have any other choice and working together. And we need to be clear that, yes, the Americans are very pushy when it comes to their interest. But we also, as Europeans, need to be clear in what we want. And what we want is to be able to set our own standards to with the United States and that we are not have to follow through with the standards that others are being set. That we have the supply chain security in place that doesn't rely on, on China and that, but we can rely on partners in the Mercosur region, where we can rely on partners 
in Africa with finally some proper trade agreements and investment agreements, I might add, in Africa with Israel, with countries like Taiwan, with countries like China. So we can not only have this duopoly of EU-US relations and EU-US collaboration, but let's call it the ring of democracies and market-centered economies Mm. that works together voluntarily in order to create a space where ideas and and technology and people can be exchanged. So what does that mean for TTC? TTC is a start. And TTC has to be the starting point for a much, much more expanded and vivid collaboration between the U.S., and the EU. And maybe we can see, and that's, by the way, that's something we work on at the European Liberal Forum at the moment, both with our network in uh, with Renew Europe, with the ALDE party, but also uh, our network of member organizations and like-minded companies, that we can take TTC as a first step in a modular set of steps to reaching a fully-fledged trade and investment ecosystem with the United States. So we will not get a revival of TTIP. The name has been burned and the issue is, well, it's a political issue, but it has been so politicized and over-emotionalized in the debates, especially in Europe. I mean, just I remember the chlorine chicken discussion that we had. So let's get out of that. Let's take what should have been TTIP, maybe expand the scope, but let's break it into smaller parts. Let's have TTC as a start, but also be very conscious on the European side that this is not only there to make friends with the United States, but also a matter of own economic survival in the long run of the European countries. And yes, there's a thing or there's there's a caveat, and this is the member states. Again, let's call a spade a spade. There is especially, in particular, one EU member state that has been also uh, siding with Mr. Putin a little bit too much uh, in the last couple of months, who had massive investments from the Chinese side in his country. Just looking at the Hungarian railroad, for instance, which had received a quite a big influx of money. If you look at the Chinese attempt with a 16 plus 1, 70 plus 1, 16 plus 1, whatever it is now, it's changing so often. Or countries like Hungary were very much in the eye and other countries in the heart of Europe, which are not part of the EU, but very much part of the integration discussion and also able to influence certain agendas, especially in the Western Balkans, have a strong Chinese footprint in them. And this only goes to show that we rather need to speed up the process because we are not alone, because there is a economic competitor who is also a systemic rival. Very well. That was a very nice closing line. I also agree that TTC should be considered as an opportunity. It's a huge opportunity to uh, cooperate politically, to engage in common lawmaking. I think the platform should be expanded to other like-minded countries. And I can think, first of all, of the larger group of OECD countries, also taking into account that criticism directed at the TTC is much, much weaker than the criticism that we uh, saw during the the negotiations of the TTIP. 
when many NGOs set up huge campaigns against the endeavor, and they were basically siding with uh, Russia, which we know that it uh, funded and live-streamed campaigns against uh, closer EU-US uh, cooperation, TGIP in particular. Well, I think we to come to a close. Thank you very much for your comments about the politics and also the economics shaping EU-China relations. I think what we know, and this is what's been discussed here as well, is that political repression in China is growing. The People's Republic is a dictatorship with an absolute claim to power domestically, but also externally, not only in Africa, but also in EU countries and the EU neighborhood. At the same time, China is an authoritarian regime, or it has an authoritarian regime, I think that's the correct uh, notion, that uses Western market mechanisms and also to a large extent still relies on uh, open borders to export, but also to import goods and services that are still scarce in the domestic economy. And this taken together with the country's enormous size uh, makes it a real competitor for liberal democracy and also a challenger of the open world economic order, uh, which we want to uh, protect and to prolong to the future. So I believe uh, that China will keep EU policymakers busy for a very long time and it will keep you and your organization, European Liberty Forum, busy for a long time. And that said, I wish you and uh, all those advocating political and economic freedoms in the world all the best uh, for the course. So thank you very much again, Daniel. It was very nice having you on this podcast. Thank you so much, Matthias, for having me. And thank you very much for, for reaching out to the European Liberal Forum. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you.